0: Dead was a historical real and true fact and everything that that means for us. So, so now we're going to close out by looking at the ascension of the God Man. Not because Sunday night after Easter. Don't don't get me wrong. Not because Sunday night on Easter is an actual to the date memorial of it. I know it happened about forty days after his resurrection. But uh, it, it, it just it closes out the, the the weekend nicely, and it gives us this this all encompassing consideration of Christ. Both from this is what theologians call it. They say they say that in his in his incarnation. And as his living as a servant and living as a perfect human being under the law, and as he's giving himself over to death, that was his, his humiliation. And then theologians speak of his exaltation. And, and uh, the, the Westminster Confession of, uh, sorry, Catechism says this in uh, question 28 of their, uh, of their catechism. It says, what consists of Christ's exaltation? And the glorious answer that comes back is this. Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day. Amen? Amen. In his ascending into heaven and in his sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in his coming to judge the world on the last day. As we've been going through the book of Ephesians, one of the the bedrock doctrines that has underpinned everything Paul has been explaining to us about about the glories of the church, about the glories of the gospel, and about the glories of our Redeemer in heaven, Jesus Christ, one of the things that underpins all of that is the doctrine of the ascension. I wonder how many people, if I asked you to uh, give a a few dot points on what is the gospel, I think we... Not here, not here, bless you. But in other churches, I think we'd be best, we'd be be good to get even 25% of people saying the phrase, he died for our sins, maybe. Hopefully that's higher. Let's pretend we we did that and, and some people would say, well, the gospel is Jesus died for my sins on the cross. Very good. Few people would be, would be theological, uh, 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 robust enough to say, well, he died for our sins, and according to Romans 4.25, he rose again for our justification. That's, that's Easter Sunday. That's a part of the gospel. If he died and stayed dead, he didn't die for us. That's, that's the fact of it. But how many people would be well-rounded in their theology enough to say that the gospel consists in this, is that he was incarnated, he lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us and he was ascended to the right hand of God. That, that is an important part of the gospel that has underpinned everything that Paul has said about Jesus Christ in the book of Ephesians. So we're taking this week to just, to just do a sermon allocated and, 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 and devoted to this one topic. What does it mean? What do we mean? Do you even have you even thought much about it? What is the ascension of Jesus Christ and what does it actually accomplish for our salvation it's it's good that we put so much emphasis on the cross and if anybody puts too much emphasis on the cross I hope it's me because all your emphasis on and yet there's a way to misunderstand so as to say as we were saying last week in Ephesians Jesus died He, he died for our sins he rose and now his ministry is ended because his his atonement is ended now yes his atonement is ended but his ministry continues The Reformers and the Puritans would would speak of, and I frequently remind us of this idea because it is so helpful at encapsulating the the Christology of the Bible, It is that there is the three offices of Jesus as our mediator. I'm sure if I quizzed you, you'd all be familiar. The first is prophet. Here we go. This makes me happy. The church point was not quite up to speed on this. I know, I just dogged him out right now. Uh, the prophet is first. Yes, he is our prophet, meaning that he speaks the word of God to us, and that even from heaven he meets us by his spirit through the scriptures. Uh, and that the second, he is our prophet. He is also our, there we go, that he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the divine priest who has both made a sacrifice for our sins, and the second part of his priestly work is even now he intercedes for us before the Father, that he's... Pleading for us, praying for us, and, and and interceding on our behalf. And the third office is that he is our. Come on, there you go. Jesus is our king. And the Westminster Catechism asks this: How doth Christ execute the office of a king? It's a little bit a little bit nosy, isn't it? The Baptists The Baptist would just say, How is Christ your king? Easier. And the answer that the prezies give back is, Christ executeth. The office of a King, in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of His and our enemies. This is what means that Jesus is King for us. That that Jesus, uh, in this in this third, this second portion of His ministry, in His exaltation. In this third uh, idea, I'm not going to say part of his ministry because he's doing all three of them all at once, but in this, this third facet of his ministry, that he is our king, what does this mean? What does this ascension achieve for us and why is it so important? It has. I want to just make an argument from history here that this has been seen. The ascension of Jesus is not some tangential uh, point of doctrine that you might bring up or think about if you have a pastor that has a particularly odd obsession. It's not that. The the ascension of Jesus has always been confessed as one of the very important standards of orthodoxy. If you denied it, you were a heretic from literally the earliest days of Christianity. So let's think of the Apostles' Creed. From the second century, the church was confessing this, and they said that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose up from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is a standard Christian belief that is so important, hence our night on it tonight. Or the Nicene Creed says uh, much the same thing. It says the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Okay, that'll do. We got the Athanasian. You can give it a bigger amen after this one. The Athanasian Creed even comes in and says. That he suffered for our salvation, descended into hell. That he rose again on the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. There we go. What amazing creed. But do you see, from the very earliest confessions of the, of the, of the Orthodox Christian church, the understanding has been that Jesus is dead, buried, risen, and ascended. It's a very important part of the gospel message, but it is very easy to forget, mostly because so few pastors will preach on it, very few of us are versed in historical theology of the confessions and creeds as we should be, but also because in our day largely what we have is, is, is a truncated gospel. It's, it's a partial gospel. People will be preaching, and again, if you were to ask them what's the gospel, it's mostly just, well, your sins are forgiven. Now, are our sins forgiven by the blood-letting, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? Absolutely, it is, it is not. Now, there are some preachers who stand up and say, the gospel is more than forgiveness of sins. And you can already tell. I want to punch them. But what they, what they mean is the gospel is less than forgiveness of sins. What they mean is it's not about forgiveness of sins. It's about loving each other. Dumb. What we mean is, it is about forgiveness of sins. The the primary article of the gospel is that your sins can be forgiven because of Jesus' death in your place by faith alone. However, the good news of the gospel is that that's the starting point is that your forgiveness and justification, according to Ephesians, is just one of the many spiritual blessings that you get in the gospel. Don't hear me saying, don't overemphasize forgiveness. No, absolutely emphasize forgiveness in the crucified Messiah on the cross. That's all we preach and all we know. But in that message is this storehouse of reality the blessings keep on multiplying, that we also have adoption, we have a future resurrection, we have a kingdom to be a part of, we have the church to belong to, there's so much more. And so if we have a truncated gospel that simply and only believes that you can have your sins forgiven, then do what you want with your life, and what you believe about the future or what happens after death is really neither here nor there, then of course, most Christians will have uh, very few ideas about what the ascension really means and why it matters. Here's the, the the story given to us in Luke chapter 24. You can go there if you please. It's it's quite short. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 52. This is the account of the of the ascension. It reads like this: Luke chapter 22, verse 50 to 52, and. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's, that's the, the event of the ascension. It seems fairly, fairly uneventful. It's just Jesus disappearing upwards, right? And, and yet what we're going to see is that it's filled with meaning. It, had to happen that way for our salvation and our church and the promises of God to be what it is. But, but, but I want to define it firstly, just before we go into what, exact it, what exactly it meant. What really was happening in the ascension is that the whole God-man, maintaining the fullness of both his natures, divine and human, were transported into heaven where he took the throne of God and is now worshipped by angels and departed saints, and he rules the universe until he returns to judge. That's what the ascension was. Don't think of the ascension as the disintegration of his humanity as he got to go back up to that pre-incarnate state as God and only God. The second that Jesus the Messiah loses his, his human nature... The second he puts it aside and no longer inhabits both divine and human nature, we stop having a mediator before the Father. We stop having a righteousness in heaven. We stop having a substitute that is emblemized and symbolized in heaven. We have no mediator. If Jesus ever takes off his human nature and and stops being unified in God human form, then we simply have no mediator. Our salvation blows up in our faces. So Jesus maintains his humanity forever and ever to be, to be the God, man, human being, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He will be that way forever and ever. Now we're going to go through six things that, our, that the ascension of Jesus Christ accomplished. <clears throat> first of all, go to Psalm chapter 8. The first thing that the ascension of Jesus Christ accomplished is that it places a human being back... On the throne over the human universe or in other words it places the human universe and I don't just mean humans I mean the entire universe is man's universe it's not built for the angels primarily for the animals primarily we as the image bearers of God have this whole universe as our backyard and under our dominion it is our world The ascension of Jesus back to the throne of the universe places the human universe back under the feet of mankind, fulfilling Adam's commission. This is what we call the dominion mandate, that Adam in the garden was told, here's your garden section of paradise and beyond its walls is a perfect world but uncultivated. Multiply yourself through childbearing with the wife that I'm going to give you. It's going to be great. Wait for that. That's that. That's next chapter. And, and he says, multiply yourselves, multiply your work, extend the garden. Be as it were God's vice regents, God's kings underneath the king, uh, uh, little gods. That's another psalm. I'm not going to go into it. But another psalm calls mankind as rulers, little G gods. Pretty strange language, but here's the idea that we are supposed to take of what God does in his creation, in his ruling, in his justice, and we are to image that into the world. So was Adam's commission. Rule this world, rule the universe, control it, take dominion over it so that it is entirely a garden of Eden structure, so that all of it is giving glory to God with, with many, many millions of human beings that are perfect and faultless and serving me. But of course... The, the, the question comes, did he accomplish that? No, no, no. He didn't, he didn't even last or, or make it through his first test. In his first test before the, the snake and, and his wife, he was, he was found guilty. He sinned and he lost in that day the headship or the, or, or, or the right rule. He lost the inheritance of the world. Read with me in Psalm 8, just so that it makes some sense what we're saying. Look at verse 3. Psalm 8 is one of those psalms that glorifies God for his amazing creation. Look at verse (laughs) 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Verse 4. What is man? What is man? Have you ever thought that? You ever tuck a look through your, through your dad's uh, the telescope thing or, or Googled for the guys who don't have an expensive telescope? You just Google, image it. And you look at the stars and the galaxies and the nebula and the cosmos and you think, if I was God, always a risky way to start a sentence, but if I was God, I really wouldn't care what is occurring on this tiny little blue dot hanging somewhere on the outskirts of the Milky Way galaxy. Have you seen the other clusters of galaxies? Have you seen what is going on out there? And he cares what we're doing, us, world war, us pillaging and raping and hurting and sinning. He cares what we're doing on earth? Yes. Yes, because it's, it's not so much earth. It's, it's not what we've earned. It's the fact that he made mankind as king over the world. It's the fact that he made mankind to bear his image. Nowhere else in the universe can you look and find the image of God that is living and breathing, but in mankind. And so Psalm 8 is here saying, you've got the galaxies. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? And yet, verse 5 says, despite how how strange it is to conceive, yet God has made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, he's saying, in one sense, you would guess if you were to see an angel... And then see a human, and you had to take a guess at who was crowned with more glory and honor, you'd guess the flaming angel. That's not a cuss word. They're literally flaming heavenly fire angels. But Psalm 8 is saying who is actually crowned with glory and honor? It's not the angels. On one sense, we're, we're just a little beneath them. Not, not far beneath them. We're just a little beneath them. But in another sense, we're far above them. Because as other Psalms say, the angels are our servants. We bear the image of God in a way that they do not. And that's what Psalm 8 is saying here in, in verse, at the end of verse 5. You crowned man with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his Scripture has shown us, as we recap, that all the world was under Adam's feet. It was all under his dominion and his job was to cultivate the world, was to exercise his dominion for its flourishing. But in his sin, as head over all things, in his sin, all things were cursed. That's why not only Adam was cursed in the curse, but all things under him. And what was under him? The entire cosmos. You can't travel 300 million light years away and escape the curse. Do you know why? Because all of it was under Adam's headship. It was under his feet. Now, in the New Testament, especially Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, we have the language that Paul uses of, in Jesus' ascension to the throne of God, God has placed all things under his feet jesus is accomplishing not just the gospel and and later covenants but jesus is even fulfilling adam's original responsibility jesus is fulfilling the dominion mandate so that now we can say first adam failed mankind lost the right dominion over the world as he ought to have used it and yet in adam 2.0 in Jesus, mankind now has an actual human, true man representative on the throne doing what Adam was supposed to do but never could do. That's what the ascension accomplished. Mankind is sitting back on the throne over the universe given to mankind. And yet it is the God-man so that God only receives the glory. Secondly, what the ascension achieves is a fulfillment of specific prophecies that God made about the Messiah. This is, this is obvious. We, we often, if you've engaged in apologetics or, or, or engaging with maybe uh, Muslims and things like that, you, you want to whip out some of the Old Testament prophecies to prove that part of the glory, part of the amazement of what God did in the life and ministry of Jesus is that he fulfilled these prophecies that were hundreds and even a thousand or more years before he came. He fulfilled them. And, and what I want to point out is that they did not just relate to his virgin birth and his, his persecution in life and his, his death on the cross and his resurrection. All those things are a fact. But it also pertains to his ascension and rule as king. So, for example, there's Daniel chapter 7. You can, you can squiz there because we'll be there for a minute. In Daniel chapter 7, <clears throat> Daniel receives the vision of, of, of a king. It's quite a... Quite a twisting, and if we weren't so familiar with it, it would be very confusing to us as well. Maybe you're going to read it, and it'll be very confusing to you. Well, that's good, because then I get to explain it, and it'll be fresh. <clears throat> but read your Old Testament. But in Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 13. He says a few rounds of confusing things. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man. This is the chapter that that Jesus gets the label son of man and uses it for himself all the time in the gospel. Son of man, that's one of his favorite terms to use for himself. But when Daniel's using it, he simply means a human being. Now, here's what's confusing when you are seeing the Ancient of Days, which is God, we're going to be introduced to him soon, Yahweh, when you're looking at him and then you see clouds come out of heaven, who comes out of heaven? Not humans. Who comes out of heaven? Probably an angel, maybe an archangel, a seraph, a cherubim. Who's coming out of heaven riding on the clouds? And as his eyes focus, he realizes that's the son of man. That's a human. That's a dude. That's confusing. Second line. In verse, uh, uh, in verse 13 still. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Here's confusing fact number two. There is no human being, me mortal, created thing that is allowed to waltz into the presence of the Ancient of Days. It's like at this point, it sort of feels like, like a teenage boy has hijacked Arnold Schwarzenegger's limousine and ridden into the red carpet on it and got out in front of the president. You go, whoa, he's about to be destroyed by the Secret Service. A human being never gets out off the clouds, pretty cool ride, gets out in front of the Ancient of Days and presents yourself before Yahweh, unless it's for judgment and you're about to be obliterated. So here's, here's, here's Daniel going, how is there a human being before God? And here's the third and most confusing thing. Verse 14, and to him, that is the guy, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed are you reading what i'm reading did god just give his glory to somebody else which he says in isaiah earlier that he never gives his glory to anybody else other than himself now we see the solution this son of man, this human, this, this guy riding the clouds is before God because he is God. He is both human and divine. And what we see in, in the ascension of Jesus being fulfilled according to Jesus, he says, I'm the son of man. Well, Jesus, human, Joshua was his name, dude from, Pal- from, 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 from Nazareth, he goes, you, if you claim to be the son of man, when do you ride into the presence of Yahweh and receive an eternal kingdom? The answer is in the ascension. So that as the apostles go and they preach this and they say, the Son of Man has been lifted up. The Son of Man has taken a kingdom. What they're saying is that the prophets did not lie. Jesus did not lie. The ascension has occurred so that he could fulfill those gloriously cryptic, mysterious prophecies of the Old Testament. Or or go back a couple of pages into Daniel chapter 2. And we have again this this prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar actually has. He has very strange dreams. I don't know what was in the Nebuchadnezzar Babylonian diet, um, but he had these amazing dreams, and God was speaking to him through them. And he had this one dream where there was go to chapter two, verse forty-four, and he had this dream where. He had this golden statue of himself and then there was another thing making up the chest and a different material making up the legs and a different material making up the feet. And then a stone came out of heaven, clocked him on the head, the whole thing went into, into dust and then this pebble turned into a mountain and took over the world. I'd be pretty confused too. I'd put it down to the vindaloo that I had that night probably. But he calls all his magicians and his wise men and brings him into the office and goes, what the heck does this mean? And if you don't tell me accurately, I'll murder you. That's, that's Daniel. And so, and so Daniel is called upon because he's wise and he gives Nebuchadnezzar the, 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 the interpretation from the God who gave the dream. And he says this, he says, you represent the first kingdom, Babylon. Then after you will come Persia and Medes. And then after them will will come the Greeks. He doesn't name them. They didn't have the names at that point. But this is the interpretation. There will be a third kingdom, the Greeks. And a fourth kingdom who would be the Romans. And he says in verse 44. Chapter 2 verse 44. And in the days of those kings, that is the Romans... In the fourth great empire after Babylon, in the day of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever now, now, if you're a good apologist against the Christian faith, at least one of the questions you'll ask is, hey, in the Roman Empire, there was supposed to be an appearance of God from heaven so that he would destroy the human empires, take the one throne above them all and rule forever. Where is he? And we say he ascended to God's right hand. Have that. The ascension is the answer to all of the prophecies that foretold exactly this. And so Jesus has risen, and so Jesus has taken that throne to fulfill the prophecies. Thirdly, so firstly, the ascension means that mankind has, has received the, the world that was made for him. Secondly, we see that he, Jesus fulfilled prophecies about him. Thirdly, we see that because of, his in, because of his ascension, we now have, the people of God now have, a high priest in the presence of God. This is Psalm 10, uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, where one of the great ascension passages, where Yahweh says to David's Lord, who would be the Messiah, Jesus, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. A great ascension passage. We, we see that coming through all over the New Testament. Psalm 110 is absolutely about Jesus, but, but there's this verse in verse 4. There's this phrase where God says to Jesus, the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In fact, he, he, he swears it by an oath. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. We don't have time to go into the Melchizedekian priesthood and all of that. But know this, that God was telling his son, on the day that you ascend the throne, the day of your inauguration, the day of your coronation, you do not just rule as king. You reign also as high priest over the people of God and anyone you represent, anyone you pray for, anyone whose sacrifice you make, they will be accepted because you are an acceptable priest who I will never change my mind about. That's what God was telling Jesus. You have to understand how infinitely good news this is to the Christian. That Jesus in heaven right now, As we speak about the the intercession of Christ, we started out the year back in January with a sermon on the intercession of Jesus Christ on behalf of us believers. And there's so many facets about it and and mysteries as well because we shouldn't think that Jesus has to beg the Father to be merciful to us and and yet we're told that he is there pleading on our behalf. And we don't need to think that the Father and the Son have differing wills and yet we're told that Jesus is pleading on our behalf behalf. So it's all a picture and yet it shows us a reality that Jesus in heaven is there on behalf of anybody who has faith in him. And he is pleading with the Father to continually be faithful to his covenant. That anybody who draws near to him through Christ will be accepted. And the Father is not not reluctant and he's not saying, fine, I guess I did say that on a bad day. No, he delightfully says, yes. And amen, for all of my promises are yes and amen in you, my son. And everyone who comes to me through you and calls on the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. Hebrews 7 tells us that the reason we continue on to the end through trials and afflictions and temptations, the reason your faith uh, is preserved is not because of your strength, but because of the strength of your mediator praying to God for you. And the power of this mediator is that he never dies. He lives to intercede for you forever. That is the good news of Psalm 110 verse 4. We have a mediator pleading on our behalf in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Amen someone. It's not even the main point of the text. He's going to keep on going. but We're just going to stop there and I'm going to read it again because that's the best news in the world. Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. How amazing. <clears throat> but when he did that, Hebrews says, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's a reference to Psalm 110. For by a single offering he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Verse 18. Uh, sorry, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, I hope you have that confidence. I hope by faith in Jesus you embrace that confidence. Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain of his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith. You have a Messiah, a high priest, who not only made the sacrifice of atonement on the cross, who not only rose again from the dead so as to secure that sacrifice as fully paying, but also he then went into heaven to go and represent you and be the high priest over the household of God. You have a representative in the White House, one theologian says. You have somebody on the throne intimately related to you. Do you think he would forget you? Do you think that he would be there ruling and reigning without you in mind? Maybe you'd be tempted to think that. Except that Hebrews tells us, after making the payment, he sat down. And there he pleads and intercedes. It's amazingly good news. Fourthly, the ascension of Jesus allows him to then send the Spirit to us. This is John chapter 16, verse 7. As you go there, I want you to see it. It's an amazing text. There are some friends, brothers, church members, you know what, even pastors. I'm going to allow for this. That if they were to sit you down one day over coffee and say, you're never going to see me again, or at least you won't see me for a long time, there would be muffled hallelujahs. There would be praise, the Lord's songs rising in your soul, but you'd, you'd, you'd play the, oh, really? How, how long? Give me hope. How, how really long? How are you going for? There, there would be secret joy and exuberance if maybe the older brother or the younger sister that always steals your clothes and your makeup or your younger brother that dinged your car or whatever it is. When they tell you they're going away for a long time, it's freedom. It's joy. It's an answer to prayer. Not so with Jesus and his disciples. All right? Look at what Jesus says in John 16, verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He had to convince them of this. They would never believe it. In fact, even to the point of his ascension, I don't think they still believed it. They, they struggled to believe that. That's why he said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Listen to me. He emphasizes this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. There are many people in, 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 in evangelicalism today who would much rather Jesus embodied and materialized on our front pew. You'd love Jesus preaching to you the sermons. You'd love Jesus. You've got the next best thing. You'd love Jesus with you at Bible studies in your own home. You'd love the physical Jesus, right? We'd love to be the disciples. And we just wished we pined for that kind of day. If only we had the real Jesus. And, and to do that is to just about blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Oh, and not, not in the eternal, unforgivable sin sense, but in order to in such a way as to speak lowly of, to disregard and grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't you realize that this right now, in Jesus' own words, where the Spirit meets with us by his word, through his ministers, among his people, on his day, the Lord's said, this is better than if the glorified Jesus was standing at the back of the room for handshakes, for Bible signatures, for dinner. It is better. Why? Because the embodied incarnate Son of God, was not sent to pour out repentance and forgiveness and regeneration on the elect of God. He was sent to purchase salvation. He, he was in their midst, but it was largely a generation of adulterous unbelievers. He said that. To what will I compare this generation? But not so when the Holy Spirit falls. The Holy Spirit is sent to be the one that regenerates. Let's, let's just think in our minds if Pentecost never happened. There's, there's much more, 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 more uh, you know, down-the-line effects if Pentecost never happened than simply there'd be no Pentecostals, okay? There'd, there'd be no Christians. Pentecost was the birth of the church. In Pentecost, the Spirit was sent from the Son on high from heaven. He received Him in the fullness. The, the Son of God, Jesus, received the Spirit in fullness and poured Him out on the church. If there was no Spirit, there'd be no Scripture, Because the apostles would not be filled with remembrance to write the scriptures. Not only would there be no scriptures, there'd be no empowered gospel preaching. No one one would even hear it because the disciples would still be hidden under the rock in Judea somewhere. And even if if the message did somehow accidentally go out, there'd be no conviction of sin. There'd be no regeneration and new birth. There'd be no faith in Jesus Christ because that all comes by the working of the Spirit. And how, how and why was the Spirit sent out? The Messiah, who purchased the people of God, earned the right to send the Spirit of God upon the people of God. And so he took his throne and he sent out the Spirit. The ascension of Jesus allows him to do just that. Fifthly, the ascension of Jesus weakens the... Some of you Reformed or cessationists are going to shiver a little bit at this. Uh, That's okay. The ascension of Jesus weakens the demonic realm and bound Satan from being able to keep the nations blind in unbelief. He weakened the demonic realm. In the the condemnation of Adam and in the curse of the world under his feet, there is another phrase that that, that is sort of repeated in different ways through Scripture, that, that now there is another ruler. Now there is another God of this age. Now there is another spirit at work among the sons of disobedience. This is Ephesian language. It is that the devil has become so powerful, so especially deceptive, both in the Garden of Eden and in every manifestation of the people of God after that. When he seeks to deceive them, he wins. When he seeks to fool them, he wins. That is until that devil, Satan, the great dragon, that beast is bound up by the ministry of Jesus Christ and thrown into that proverbial pit so that he no longer has the power to deceive the nations against the preaching of the gospel. This is foretold in Revelation chapter 20, or summarized for us in Revelation chapter 20. This is, this is my, there'll be different interpretations on, on when and how this happens, but this is in my interpretation on this, the, that I side with those who say this, is, is a spiritual, magnificent, apocalyptic vision of what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection to the devil. Here's what Revelation 20 verse 1 says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Now, is there any possible literal thing as a bottomless pit? No. Is there a literal key in the hand of the angel? I doubt it. Is there a great chain that can actually bind up Satan? I doubt it. Is he a literal dragon? No. And so here, here all, I'm not bound to say that this is all literal, but rather spiritual and true. Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now it is in my reading, if nothing else here is extremely literal, why would I count the thousand years to be literal? That's a tremendous question. I don't. I don't think it's a literal thousand years. I think the thousand years is symbolic of many years over which Christ reigns. Look at verse 3. He's been bound for a thousand years and thrown into the pit, and it was shut and sealed over him. Why? Does it say that it was shut and sealed over him so that he may not prowl among the people of God anymore? No. Does it say so that he has no power and no influence in the world anymore? No. No. What is the essence? What is the substance of this binding of the devil through the death of Christ? It is primarily that he no longer has the all-pervasive, all-victorious deception of the nations anymore. So that as God looked down from heaven, he had this tiny little land strip of just a few, you know, tribes, clans, and families called the Israelites who were faithful to him. And even then it was a bit how you're going. There was many who were adulterous and idolatrous and and he would have to punish them and uh, discipline them in order to remain faithful because everywhere else was under the devil's sway and deception. And even in the people of God, there was much deception. But not when Jesus reigns. When Jesus reigns over the people of God, the bride is a pure white bride adorned for her husband. Because the devil, the, the, the ancient serpent, the dragon, Satan, has been bound. What does it say here in verse 3? Verse so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended. And after that he shall be released for a little while. We'll get into that another time. But here it is that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, we'll read this also in Matthew 12, there is the great binding of the devil. The great binding of, in other terms, the strong man. So that in his ascension, he, he topples down the devil's strongholds. In the cross, Colossians 2 told us, he, put to, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Yes, they're around and yes, they're powerful and they exist, but they cannot stand when the sound of the gospel thunders. Calvin used to say that the preaching of the gospel is, is thunder that makes the devil fall like lightning. I love that. Matthew verse 12, Jesus uses other language. (coughs) He says, sorry, let me go to Matthew verse 12. He's been accused that by his exorcisms, what he's doing is partnering with Satan. He's done a deal with the devil, and of course, he can cast out demons because, you know, the devil's on his side. And Jesus uses a, a, a sprinkling of logic and puts that down and says, Satan's not casting out Satan. He actually says, you're missing the main point. Let's, let's think of another equation. He says, uh, <clears throat> uh, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Now, let's just get a, a show of hands. Who wants to say that it was by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons? Just so you know, the only other option is Satan, and he condemns that viewpoint pretty heavily. Okay, so he says if, but of course, we're supposed to conclude absolutely, yes. He casts out demons by the power of, by the finger of God. So here he says, verse 28, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's what else he says. He uses an analogy, like, like the dragon analogy, but a little bit more tame, a little bit more domestic. He says, think of it this way. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house no this is not a verse that says every time we gather for worship we're going to bind up the strong man the demon over your life and declare victory for your finances not at all what is happening this is a once for all-time activity and work that is done by jesus in his earthly administration That by his preaching, by his, uh, his, his refusal to sin in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, what he was doing was binding up the strong man so that he could go and take seat at the right hand of God and rule and reign without the opposition. Yes, he's around, and yes, he's the devil, and yes, he deceives, but he is on a shortened leash since before Jesus' ministry. The ascension of Jesus... Weakens the demonic realm and accomplishes the binding of Satan from being able to deceive the nations in unbelief. And we'll finish on this. Number six, the ascension of Jesus allows him to reign and start putting his enemies under his feet. Go to Acts chapter five. This is what we said from the very beginning. The ascension means that everything's under his feet. But there's another sense in which Psalm 110 says God is progressively making all of his enemies footstools underneath his throne. That that he gets to put his his foot on their throat. He gets to use their backs as, as his footrest. This is what is happening. There's this progressive idea that one by one, all things which are subjected to him he progressively exercises his dominion and puts them down, wipes them out of history and accomplishes, accomplishes actual historical victory over them. But I want to show us at this point one of the most powerful and one of the most important, at least individually, the most important way in which the king now subdues his enemies is that he brings his enemies to conversion where they once hated him they become to love Him. Once they opposed Him, they now come to trust Him as their Savior. This is the most, to me, I mean, if I know my own heart, hopefully if you know your own heart, this appears to me the most wonderfully powerful act that Jesus the King is able to do. That He's able to look at the hearts that once hated Him and loved to sin and He brings us by the Holy Spirit to be able to repent and trust in Him. So the Apostle Peter thought in Acts chapter 5. He says in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. This is, just for some context, mid-arrest. Mid, uh, uh, like the cuffs are behind his back, he's getting thrown into the paddy wagon and he's preaching as he goes. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is what was burning on the heart of Peter. That He wasn't just saying, Jesus is king, you're all going to burn. He was saying, Jesus has been raised up, ascended and given the authority so that he can look at his enemies charging at him, armed with every sinful hatred, animosity that we have and he can turn us into servants and not just servants but children and not just children but children who reign and rule with him, seated with him on the throne of his father. Jesus subdues us. Through conversion, that is the powerful act of him as king over us. But it goes further, that in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2, we can also see it in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll go to Revelation 11, is that Jesus is now ruling and reigning over the nations so that they are his puppets. Is every nation Christian? No. No. Would it be solved if we were to force every nation to be Christian? Absolutely not. And yet, in another sense, is Jesus right now ruling over them all so that that while they don't recognize it, he can say, this is all my empire and I will exercise my dominion in time? Absolutely. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. That's the base text that that handles Messiah, that, that glorious opera was taken from this very text, that he shall, I won't sing it, but you know the tune, that he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of the world have become a kingdom under God and of his Christ. So that's another sense. Jesus puts his enemies under his feet by way of converting us. He puts enemies under his feet by way of ruling over kingdoms. And then he also puts enemies under his feet by way of the consummation. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you can go to verse 24 if you wish to read it. Otherwise, I'll be reading it now. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Our Jesus is a victorious savior. It says this and then comes the end so now we're thinking the last moments of human history before the consummation then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet that's what that's what psalm 110 said that God would make him rule until you can walk through the earth and not find an existing threat to the rule and reign of Christ. Now, maybe that happens progressively through history. Amen, somebody. Maybe that happens after his return in the future. I know we'll disagree about the particulars. Here's the important part. Jesus has been made king above all and is in the process now already of accomplishing victory over enemies so that at some time in the future you will walk through the earth and not be able to find a functional, actual, threatening opposition to Jesus Christ. And you'll you'll have to agree with 1 Corinthians 15 and look around and say, I guess there's one enemy left, that enemy that still kills us all at the end of our life. That one enemy left is death. Will Jesus even accomplish victory over this last enemy? And Paul says, yes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He shall rule until all enemies are put under his feet. Then comes the resurrection after that fact. Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Or a little bit further down. When all things are subjected to him, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I I know that's, that's that's a big mouthful. Here's the point. History since Jesus' ascension is now God bringing enemies progressively under Jesus' feet so that he is victorious over them all. And the last one that he defeats is death because he comes back and kills death finally, swallowing it up in victory by raising us all in resurrection. And at that point, Jesus will be able to say, every ounce of things that Adam lost has been redeemed by my blood, has been ruled by my kingship, the kingdom, having been eradicated the curse and throwing the unrepentant into hell, the kingdom is now in the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom is now in perfect subjection to its king. And then what does the son do? Even the son, the son of God, the God-man, the ruler and the reigner of all, he himself turns and bends the knee and presents the accomplished kingdom with all the kingdom people and the accomplished kingdom world, he gives it to the Father that he might receive glory for it all. And thus starts eternity where we give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives that glory to his own father because he is worthy of glory and honor and blessing and praise because by his blood he ransomed a people from every tribe, tongue, clan, and nation that we might be a kingdom of priests to God, his father, and our father. Amen, somebody. Here's the warning. Do not be found an enemy of that king. As long as he has not yet appeared in the clouds, he offers to you in mercy the redemption that all Christians delight in, the forgiveness of sins, the joining to the kingdom, and the hoping of that final day when the ruling Christ returns. Spurgeon tells a story of a man who was, who was, uh, who was very uh, anxious, and he was speaking to his pastor and saying, I, I know the gospel offers salvation. I know that you invite me to Jesus I know that the word, I see it written there. It, it demands that I repent to the Lord, but, but I have these, these sins I've spoken to no soul. I, I have this life that I've lived, the people that I've hurt, and, and his wounded conscience was just flaring up and making him feel that he had no right to come and take of the free salvation. What, a, what, a, what an insult to God's justice. What a spitting in the face of the Messiah if he was to come and hide all of his sins in the wounds of Jesus Christ. He felt like he would be taking advantage. So the pastor said, I, I, I don't have time to talk about this now. That's a risky line as a pastor. I don't have time to talk about this now. Can you? Here's a card. Can you come and see me at 2 p.m. on Tuesday in my office? So he did. And so he walked up to the, the pastor's office on Main Street on, on that Tuesday at 2 p.m., and, and he goes and knocks, and just as he's coming up to the door and knocking, he sees the pastor walk in and switches our little sign to do not disturb. And, and so he knocks anyway, and he opens the door and says, what? And the guy's standing there with the note and goes, well, I thought maybe we could have a meeting. He goes, why? Well, shows him the card, a little bit sheepish, thinking this was dumb. I shouldn't have come. This pastor's too busy. He says, I... You, you, said that, you said that I could come in. He goes, my sign says do not disturb. Closes the door. It's a risky game as a pastor. <laughs> and so the guy knocks again and the pastor opens the door and goes, what would you like, brother? And he goes, you told me I could come by. I carved out time in my schedule to be here. You said I could come in and we could discuss. And he looks him in the eyes and says, you mean to tell me? But because I told you and gave you the permission to ask of me, you feel like you have the authority to come and take up my time. But Jesus, the Son of God, the King of all glory, has written in his word that sinners may come and drink of the rivers of living water that flow from his veins and you won't take him up on his words. Who's of greater authority, me over my own schedule or Jesus over his own blood? Here this man fell to the ground and came in and prayed and cried and there he was saved in the moment. How many of you are still standing off because, because I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't know if I can believe what the pastor says. I don't know if I can believe what my parents say, my friends say. But full forgiveness for the likes of me? It's not on our authority. It's not on our promises. It is written in the blood and by the Spirit it is made a promise by the highest authority in the universe. The king of all kings, the king of history tells you that you can come and take of his forgiveness. This is what the ascension means. Make good on that promise. Let's pray. Father God, so often our minds are taken up by the things of this earth. And, and, and despite what you say in Colossians, our hearts and our minds and our thoughts are set on the things of this earth. And we worry about the money and the taxes and the relationships and the, and the household chores and the schooling and the assignments and, and the plans for the future. Oh, God, these, these things can distract, but it is a delight to be able to consider the, 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 the topic of all topics, the, the idea of all ideas, the truth of all truths the magnificent truth that Jesus Christ is the ascended, reigning, ruling, high priest, prophet and king so that all of God's chosen people will be brought safely into your kingdom on the last day. Father God, I pray that we would be, even in our own, in our own worship and prayer, we would be confident as we approach the throne. We would be exuberant as we pray, knowing that it is the King of all kings that we ask and we petition for the salvation of our friends, for the overcoming of sin, for the growth of the church. Father God, God, we pray to the King of all kings, we can be confident. Would you also transform, Lord, our worship, that we would be giving you the praise you deserve with with joy and, and, and exuberance because you are that King worthy of such praise. Father God, would you also give confidence to everyone who still stands far off? that no matter their sins and no matter what they've committed, no matter their lifestyles and what they've said about you in the past, if they set themselves running towards the fountain of the blood of Jesus, no one will stop them. No one can stop You will command your angels to clear the path that they will be able to come and drink of the fountain of living water. Father God, please give salvation today to those who are still standing far off. Give them faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father God, please glorify yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our church and in all churches that bear your name. Father God, we pray all these things in the name of the glorious, risen, ascended, Messiah and Savior Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.